In Black and White is brought to you by subscribers of The Herald Sun. Our subscribers get access to the full Herald Sun website, including companion articles and photographs to this podcast. If you like this podcast and want to support it, click on heraldsun.com.au forward slash IBAW to go to the new In Black and White page and click on any article to begin. Nina is a fascinating character in her own right. She realised that they were heading to Australia and that she would be part of the Soviet Olympic support team. Nina decided as she stepped down the gangplank of the ship that this would be her day to escape. When Melbourne hosted the Olympic Games in 1956, it was a time of great excitement, but also much anxiety about the presence of the Soviet team. It was at the height of the Cold War. There was growing hostility between the US and Soviet Union and a wave of anti-communist sentiment in Australia led by Prime Minister Robert Menzies. And it was only two years after the infamous Petrov affair when Canberra-based Russian spies Vladimir and Avdokia Petrov had sensationally defected and spilled their secrets to ASIO, exposing 600 Soviet spies. Even as the Soviets invaded Hungary to brutally quash a nationwide revolution, the Soviet team was on its way by ship to Melbourne to compete in the Olympics. On board was a young Ukrainian stewardess named Nina Paranyuk, who had long dreamed of escaping her life of grinding poverty and famine under the tyranny of Soviet rule. Nina and other crew aboard the ship were warned not even to think about deserting or they would be punished as enemies of Russia. And a Communist Party official from Moscow warned them not to speak to people from their home countries living in Melbourne because they too were the enemy. Nina was faced with a heartbreaking decision to return to her home in the Ukraine and her life of misery and oppression, or make a bid for freedom while in Melbourne and never see her family or friends again. She chose to make a dramatic escape from the clutches of the Russians four days before the Olympics while on a day trip at Melbourne Zoo, sparking an international diplomatic incident. Nina's fascinating story against the backdrop of the 1956 Olympics is told in a new book by Melbourne author, academic and former Herald Sun journalist Nick Richardson. It's called 1956, the year Australia welcomed the world. Nick joins us today. Welcome to the podcast, Nick. Thanks, Jen. I'd love it if you could start by setting the scene for us. So it was 1956, the Olympics were coming to Melbourne. It must have been a time of huge excitement. But at the same time, it was the midst of the Cold War. What was the mood like at the time? The mood was complicated by a sense in Melbourne that a lot of people thought that we might have bitten off a bit more than we could chew. So there was a little of anxiety around what was going to come. Would we be good hosts? Would we deliver the kind of games that the world would approve of? And what complicated that, of course, was the whole Cold War scenario, which was in many ways at its peak in the mid-50s. And that was exemplified by what was going on internationally in the lead-up to the Games themselves. Now, a couple of things that had occurred most 
most uh, spectacularly was the uh, Hungarian uprising that occurred largely in Budapest and was crushed by the Soviet tanks uh, in the weeks leading up to the games. So that added um, a degree of anxiety and tension that had not been planned for and there was clearly a domino effect in terms of some of the other European countries who boycotted the games as a consequence. So this was already before the, the opening ceremony a games affected by international boycotts like no other games had been before. So the international temperature around these games was far higher than, than any Olympic organiser could have legitimately expected. Given these international events that you're describing, was it surprising that the Soviets chose to send a team to Melbourne? It was an interesting decision in the end, and there was a moment when the team which was on board the Gruzia stopped on its journey uh, midway and monitored the international reaction to the Hungarian uprising and their response to it. And if it had have been, I think, more overt and if, for example, the United States in particular had been more active in condemning what had gone on, I suspect the Soviets would have turned back or at least headed to China, which was, I think, part of the original plan should that international condemnation have been loud and vigorous. So there was a moment where they were uh, in doubt and then they decided to go ahead. And what concerns were held by ASIO at the time about the Soviets' presence in Melbourne for the Olympics? One of the things that they had learnt from the Petrov affair just two years earlier was they felt their vigilance needed to be strengthened and they needed to plan rigorously for the likelihood that there would be uh, not only the presence of Soviet ministers and KGB operatives, for example, in Melbourne, but also people who wanted to become uh, political refugees or seek political asylum. Now, you mentioned the Petrovs, and we did a podcast on them just a, a few weeks ago. So there were actually specific concerns held for the Petrovs as well, weren't there? There, there were, uh, and so they were being moved to safe houses in Queensland, but they were also being used to help identify uh, some of the photographs that ASIO were being sent of overseas operatives who might be in Melbourne for the Games. So what sort of plans did ASIO put in place in case there were any defections? Pretty much every ASIO operative wherever they were around the country, was going to be brought into Melbourne to make sure that if this political asylum issue became a real one, they had the resources on the ground to not only process those applications, but deal with any diplomatic fallout as well. Okay. And ASIO was held in very high regard at this time, weren't they, because of the success of the Petrov affair only a couple of years before. So they would have had the year of the Menzies government. They did, and Petro, the Petrov affair was absolutely central to that, as you say. But equally important was that, that because they had only been really established in 1949 with the stroke of Prime Minister Ben Chifley's pen, they needed to actually have some uh, legal and statutory authority. So Menzies at the time basically made sure that in the middle of 1956, with all this going on, that they were given some uh, protection and quarantine from any changes in government that might have might have led to them being disbanded. Thanks, Nick. And now can you tell us about Nina Paranyuk? Who was she and how did she come to be the stewardess aboard the, the ship that brought the Soviets to Melbourne? 
Nina is a fascinating character in her own right and she in some ways exemplifies what the 1950s Soviet Union life was like. Nina was one of four children who was brought up in very impoverished circumstances in a village about 200 kilometres north of Odessa in the Ukraine. She had been worked in a number of menial jobs. Uh, Her two brothers had been basically press-ganged into the Soviet army, so she had a younger sister uh, and her mother, and her father had died basically uh, working on the collective farm initiatives that Stalin had rolled out. There had been two famines that had rolled through the Ukraine during Nina's early years, and it had caused an enormous cost to that community, and Nina felt that there was only one choice that she had, and that was to escape her past and try to make a better life somewhere. What that looked like, she seemed to have no great idea about. She just wanted to get away. She'd applied for a job as a stewardess in East Germany and hadn't been successful, and then applied for a job aboard the uh, Grusia uh, as a steward and was successful. At the time she applied, she didn't know where the ship was going or what its task would be. Within several months, she realised that they were heading to Australia and that she would be part of the Soviet Olympic support team. So the ship has arrived in Melbourne on November 7. There's a great description in your book of the ship's arrival in Melbourne and the welcome that the crew members received. I'd love it if you could tell us more about that. So they were welcomed extraordinarily uh, generously. Uh, As far as the Soviet staff members were concerned, they were immediately taken in by the gifts. Uh, There was singing, there were gum leaves, there were flowers, there were postcards. There was this huge sense of uh, newcomers to Melbourne being welcomed by a group of fervent and ardent supporters. And how did the ship captain explain away what the crew members saw in Melbourne? He was incredibly disdainful of it and in fact addressed them, according to Nina, in this way. You acted like beggars. You were warned how to act when you arrived in Australia. You were running up and down the gangplanks like monkeys to get presents for the capitalists. Everybody was wearing his best suit in that crowd. They have no more than one suit like that. All those cars you saw are owned by the government. They were given to the people for publicity for Australia during the Olympic Games. And this was obviously because what they were seeing was a a pretty amazing way of life in Melbourne and he had to explain it in a way that didn't make all all the communists aboard the ship think that capitalism was actually a pretty good way to go. Well, absolutely, and I think uh, it was a battle that he was going to lose over the course of the the Games. Now, I take it that Nina was stuck on the ship for several days after the ship first arrived, but then she was due to have her day off, the, the Sunday on the 18th of November. What did she do on her day off? So the staff were offered uh, an opportunity to do a, a tour of Melbourne, and it was a bus tour with step stops along the way, uh, which included Captain Cook's Cottage, the MCG, and then the Melbourne Zoo. It was a day of uh, fine rain and a little overcast, and Nina decided as she stepped down the gangplank of the ship that this would be her day to escape. So she initially thought about going at Captain Cook's cottage, but wasn't appropriate. She couldn't do it at the MCG. And then finally, at the zoo, 
she manufactured an opportunity to stay behind while the rest of the group went off looking at um, animals and in that moment Nina took a chance. So they would have been pretty closely supervised, I assume, by some senior Soviet crew members? That's my understanding and uh, there would have been a moment when she would have been noticed but by that stage she had disappeared. So she attaches herself to the tail end of the group of Russians who are there to look at Australian native flora and fauna and they're on their way to look at the koalas and Nina is at the back of the group and she discreetly hangs back as they move onto the koalas. She tries to look interested in a bird that she thinks is actually a lyrebird but is in fact a macaw and as the Russians keep moving she retreats and finds her way out of the zoo from there. And then she somehow managed to flag down a car? What happened next? So she flags down a car that actually takes her to, initially, the corner of Sydney Road and Brunswick Road. Now, she doesn't speak any English, and the drivers and his passenger don't speak any Russian or Ukrainian. So there's a lot of um, gestures and arm-waving and head-nodding and all of that. And the driver wants to leave Nina on the corner of the two busy roads. And she pleads with him to actually go a bit further because she obviously doesn't know where she is but doesn't feel comfortable at that particular junction. So they drive on to near Broadmeadows train station on Camp Road. Now, the happy coincidence about this is, of course, is that this is very close to the old Broadmeadows uh, migrant camp and there are a number of houses close to the camp which contain a number of migrants, some from Germany, some from Russia and some from the Ukraine. So she's happened to hear some Ukrainian voices? She has. She's heard them and some children playing, so she seeks them out and at that moment there's a connection and she takes sanctuary in that house. Now, things get a little interesting after that because... News doesn't have to be boring. The Brits have given Prince Harry a new nickname after yet another tell-all interview. Oh, God, is it the ginger winder? <laughs> <laughs> Let the team at news.com.au get you up to speed each day with their podcast from the newsroom. A couple were busted joining the Mile High Club. Well, I guess they can't fly virgin anymore. <laughs> Politics, sport, red carpets, royals. Get all the goss in just a few minutes. Follow from the newsroom wherever you get your podcast from. There are visitors to this house later that night who are asking that family if they have seen any strangers come by. And the family keeps the secret. Nina is not revealed. And later that night, Nina is taken to a Ukrainian safe house. When was it realised that she was missing? The next day that it became an issue. Clearly, when the group of tourists got assembled at the zoo to go back to the ship and did a head count, it was clear that she wasn't among them. But the real anxiety became more public the next day when it started to become part of a diplomatic discussion, which then fed directly into those broader tensions that we were talking about earlier. Why was it such a big deal to the Soviets that she would defect? I mean, she didn't have any secrets, she wasn't a spy like the Petrov, so why did it matter so much? It's an interesting question, and I think in any other circumstance, they might well have decided that there was, there was nothing to lose by it. But I think at this moment, 
as far as they were concerned, it was a significant breach of their own protocols. It said something about their the Soviets' inability to keep everyone thinking, behaving, doing the same thing. And in a very pragmatic sense, uh, the ship's captain would have been fined the equivalent of what was £100 for staff decamping or escaping during his time in Australia. It wasn't a good look uh, internationally for one of their members to effectively get away so easily and find sanctuary uh, with such alacrity. Now, Nina's actually gone straight to the top, hasn't she? And she's written a letter at this point to Prime Minister Menzies. She has. She feels that this is what she needs to do to plead her case. And the letter actually sets out in some detail about what she proposes to do. She writes to Menzies, I beg you to save me from my Russians with whom there is no light. Throughout my whole life, I have not known freedom and I hated communism. I ask you very much not to refuse my application to remain here. If you hand me back to be shot by a Russian bullet, I prefer to be shot here by your bullet. I have decided to remain here for the rest of my life. Now, this would have been received pretty well by Menzies, presumably, because it fed well into his anti-communism views. It did, but the interesting thing about all of that was that he didn't immediately embrace the idea of offering Nina political asylum, as she had pleaded with him to do. His view, guided by the head of ASIO, uh, Brigadier Spry, was very much about let's wait and see. There was a sense maybe that Nina had been manipulated by anti-Soviet interests in Australia and that she might not have been a legitimate um, cause for the government to make such a diplomatic commitment to. The other thing here, and it goes to that earlier point is there was some genuine concern that if Nina became a cause celeb, Russia might well have withdrawn from the Olympics altogether. And there was some veiled threats along those lines from the two Soviet diplomats who had been allowed back into Australia for the duration of the Games. So what, what's happened over the course of the Games? Has Nina remained in hiding with this U- Ukrainian family the whole time? Uh, For most of the time, uh, she's been moved between a couple of houses um, and later she gets an opportunity to go to a farm in Geelong uh, and she's amazed at the bounty and sense of plenty that this farm has. It's such a stark contrast to what she's been used to in terms of the health of the animals and the produce that the the farm can can make. But she's also undergone a bit of a physical change herself. She's had a different hairstyle. She's got new clothes. Uh, She's actually looking more like a local than she did when she left the ship. And who was out looking for her? Were Were the Soviets actively looking for her? Was ASIO looking for her or the police? It's an interesting question, this one, because the special branch of the police, which basically were the investigative arm in this particular instance, couldn't find her. They were the lead investigators and they were very much petitioned three times a day, four times a day, phone calls from the Soviet diplomats wanting to know if they had found Nina. As far as ASIO was concerned, they wanted it to play out as clearly and cleanly as it could without getting their fingerprints on it. And what was the attitude of Australian authorities to giving her political asylum? 
they weren't particularly sympathetic. They actually wanted to be sure that she was the genuine article first off. They didn't want to start a precedent that they felt could have led to a number of these uh, cases coming forward especially because of the Hungarian situation. So they were a little sensitive about all of this. And there is, there is a view that some Australian authorities might have known where Nina was. Uh, and if that was the case, they deliberately left her there because to have brought her into the public glare during the Games would have been counterproductive in so many ways. Now, I take it Nina sent further letters after that first one we mentioned to Menzies and they became increasingly dramatic over time. They did become increasingly dramatic to the point, some might say, melodramatic. And I think it is perhaps a modern perspective if we apply that word to Nina. I think she was at that point quite desperate to know what her fate would be. She actually says in one of those letters that she would jump off the ship and commit suicide rather than go back to the Soviet Union. The issue is, despite all of that, there is still no acknowledgement from Australian authorities that she will be given political asylum. So she didn't come out of hiding until after the Soviet ship had left Melbourne? That's right. Now, the Soviets could have issued an an arrest warrant for her because under the terms of the Navigation Act, she could have been classified as a deserter. So they decided not to do that and towards the end of their time here when it was clear that she wasn't going to be found or indeed come forward, they made very public noises that they were reconciled to the fact that she had made a mistake um, and that they would sail without her. They had tried to characterise her in a particular way. They, They had let Australian authorities know that she was a person perhaps of slovenly character, their words, and to try as a result of that to convince Australians that she wouldn't necessarily be the sort of person Australia would want as a citizen. Nonetheless, their their efforts to convince Australian authorities to do something about it kind of ebbed uh, the closer it got to the end of the Games. So she was in hiding what for a couple of months or like? Yeah, two months, a couple two months, of months. okay. Yeah. Mm. So when did she eventually come out of hiding? She was found... Uh, in early 1957 by the special branch who had managed to find, I think, the relevant Ukrainian who then led them to the house in the northern suburbs of Melbourne. And what happened next? A journalist at the Melbourne Herald, Lionel Hogg, had been on leave during a lot of Nina's disappearance. He came back to work and told his editor that he thought he could find Nina. Now, Lionel had some extensive contacts in the police force, one of whom was the man who had led the investigation into Nina at Special Branch. And Hogg contacted him and, through a series of adroit negotiations, managed to get in contact with Nina. And one of the great ironies of it is he actually met her at the zoo uh, and from there with two Ukrainian minders, Nina, uh, over a period of four nights, uh, spent time with Hogg in Hogg's Windsor home, uh, relaying her whole story. That then became um, a series that was published in the Herald and won Lionel Hogg the first Walkley Award for News Reporter of the Year. So there was some huge significance in what Nina had told Hogg And it was powerfully redolent of the Soviet experience and the whole motivation for Nina taking the steps she did. And in many ways, 
it kind of set up a, a kind of a romantic notion of Nina's escape and a romantic notion of Nina herself as a, a persecuted person who had found safety in the warmth and comfort of the Olympic City. So what was the attitude of the Victorian public to Nina and her defection before these articles appeared? There was, a, I think, a sense that they didn't know enough about her, they didn't know her story, and I think once the stories came out, there was, there was some real understanding of what she'd had to put up with and complete, in some ways, a kind of indication for the action she'd taken. Bear in mind there was quite overt public hostility around who the Soviets were what they did and how they behaved, although the full extent of some of the atrocities had not been revealed at that point, there was still a great sense that here was a woman who had been much put upon and and now she had come to a country where she could live a free life. So after those newspaper articles, was she able to come out of hiding completely? Nina's anxiety and nervousness about public exposure was was still very strong and the two months of uh, being in the safe houses had clearly been a burden on her. So I understand that after she came out of hiding, she actually received 12 marriage proposals. Can you explain that? Yes, there were a number of men who felt that they wanted to make Nina's life complete in this country. They felt that marrying them would be the ultimate confirmation of that. They hadn't met her, obviously, and in fact, the man she finished up marrying, Fossil Kusak, she had only known for five days or so. But she said at the time, it was love at first sight. And had he simply sent her a photo and a little bit of descriptive information about himself? That was all he had done. Um, he was an engineer who spent some time working on the Snowy Mountain Scheme and had some connections in Melbourne through the Ukrainian community. That was how he was aware of Nina and he sent those personal details and photo and she decided that he was the man for her. And what else do we know about her life from there? It became very difficult uh, for me to actually follow her life after the late 1960s. It appears that she moved to the Blue Mountains in New South Wales. She left her husband and son here in Melbourne. She changed her name and was pretty much never heard of again until a story appeared in the New York Times in the mid-1970s which identified her as having been on the Soviet Union or KGB's kill list. So Nina's anxiety and fear about coming to an unfortunate end was perhaps well-founded in the end. Any idea why she left her husband and son? have no idea other than, you know, we can speculate about whether she felt that life had become too hard, uh, that it hadn't worked out the way she, she liked, the way she wanted, or perhaps it was just that it had become too hard to maintain the new identity and perhaps she just needed the time by herself to create something that was hers and hers only. It's quite a tragic story, isn't it, really? I mean, she, she's left behind the Soviet Union in search of a better life, but did she ever really find it? It's hard to know, isn't it? I mean, she left her younger sister and mother back in Ukraine and she never saw them again after she came to Melbourne. So the whole family was fractured as well. And I think, I think that was a significant burden for her and I'm sure that it would have eroded some of the joy she felt at being in a new country. Can you sum up the significance of, of Nina and her defection in, uh, in the context of the 1956 Olympics? 
I think Nina's situation was one that became a, a lightning rod for so many of the tensions and prejudices and anxieties that eddied around the Cold War. Most specifically, I think it brought it home to Australia at its most vulnerable time in some ways. We were opening ourselves up to the world and here was this instance of someone who, who saw what we were and what we are and wanted to be part of it. Well, thanks very much for coming into the podcast, Nick. No worries, Jen. Thanks for having me. If you want to read more about Nina Paranyuk, you'll find a link to a story and photos of her and her husband and son in the show notes to this podcast. Thanks for listening. This has been In Black and White, a podcast about some of Victoria's forgotten characters. Written and hosted by me, Jen Kelly, and produced by Al Tynan. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please rate and review it on whatever platform you're listening on. And if you want to support this podcast and be notified when each episode comes out, make sure you hit the subscribe button. A troubled young woman. Her evil parents. We never had any issues between us. Has justice been done? I'm in a prison. Join journalist Richard Gilliatt as he delves into one of Australia's most gripping cases. Shadow of Doubt, a new podcast investigation from The Australian. I cannot find one of these allegations that's possible. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts.